friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm really glad to be with you this week again on Conversations with Consequences. Later on in the hour, we're going to discuss a new poll released this week. The poll found that Catholic public officials who oppose church teachings of the Catholic Church, and you know who I'm talking about, create confusion and disunity and should not present themselves for communion. The poll was released by Catholic Vote, and we're going to talk to Brian Birch, who's the president of the group, about this poll and what it means, and also about Eucharistic coherence and all the, the lovely things that, that that means and the way that um, some politicians in the United States are not living up to that. But first, I'm anxious to share a very important voice with you today. We have Katie Faust, who has written a fabulous book championing the rights of children. Her book is called Them Before us why we need a global children's rights movement. Katie herself endured a divorce as a child and then was raised by a same-sex couple, her mother and her mother's partner. And after this experience, through this experience, Katie has become an outspoken advocate on the importance of children being raised in homes with a mother and father, preferably their biological mother and father. She also knows firsthand the real trauma children experience due to divorce. Like me, she's a mother by biology and adoption. Welcome to the show, Katie. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. You know, Katie, your book is packed with so much wisdom and reading through it, none of it is surprising to me. But I recognize that there are so many things about the rights of children that we as a, as a culture have collectively abandoned slowly over the last few decades that we've become used to it. It's, it's, nor, it's our normal milieu. It's like the frog in the boiling, the water that slowly mm-hmm. rises in temperature. And seeing it all put together is really a shocking thing because we are living in a time of unprecedented disrespect for children. Yeah, it definitely crept in slowly um, in ways that seemed kind of acceptable to reasonable people. Um, you know, we say in the in the book that the redefinition of family in a legal sense really started with no-fault divorce, where mm-hmm. people could understand, oh, well, we don't want somebody to have to lie about um, why they're getting divorced. You know, we don't want somebody to have to accuse somebody else of adultery, abuse, or abandonment just so they can get out of an unhappy marriage. So, you know, let's just remove that aspect of permanence that's always been a foundational part of marriage. And so, you know, that was what we say, the original redefinition of marriage. Um, and then with the introduction of reproductive technologies and the use of um, sperm donation originally with heterosexual couples, but then single mothers by choice and now same-sex couples. And then you completely throw out gender when it comes to the definition of marriage. Um, Now you're moving on to things like womb rental and surrogacy. Um, And then you get to the point where we are now, which is children are commodities. Children are commodities that can be handed over and purchased and owned 
by whatever adults have the money and means to acquire them. And there really has been the slow boil, like you said, kind of leading up to this moment. And I think a lot of people don't even realize how bad it's gotten. But yes, these are perilous times for kids. You know, I read recently, I was reading C.S. Lewis, some of his essays, and he was talking about, does society progress? Is there such a thing as, are we really improving as people? And he said, well, well, we, we we say that we treat children better, and we do treat children better in a sense, right? We don't have child labor. We don't send little boys up chimneys to sweep them and to be suffocated. We don't, there's a lot of things that we do that are, that in a way that we're sort of sentimental about children and we take really good care of them. We worry about their education. For instance, we have laws that children have to be educated, something Mm -hmm. that would have been unthinkable in the vast, the eons of human (laughs) experience, right? That nobody really cared about the education of children per se. And yet this coexists with a terrible, discounting of the value of children starting let's be frank through abortion right where mm-hmm, children exactly. children are being conceived by the hundreds of thousands and immediately discarded because they're inconvenient to their parents mm-hmm. so are we progressing as a society when it comes to to taking care of our children i know we started this program by talking about how we've we've disregarded children's rights but in a way we have improved in our sentimental connection to children sure well as long as it does not run afoul of adult desires then hmm. i'd say that yeah. you're probably right but when a child's fundamental rights, first of all, their right to life, second of all, their right to their own mother and father, which we outlined in detail in chapter one of the book. If a child's rights run up against adult desire, culturally and now increasingly in our courts, it's adult desire that wins the day. And so that is where I see the greatest infringement on the rights and well-being of children is what one of our advisors, Helen Alvare, that we quote in the first chapter of the book, you know, she plots a course um, about how the courts have radically shifted their position away from the rights of children towards what she calls adult sexual expressionism. That that is now the greatest, the most highly prized attribute now is adults' sexual expressionism. And then everything, including children's fundamental rights, uh, must be laid upon that altar of adult desires and, um, you know, adults' sort of self-actualization. And so you see it very clearly in the abortion debate. But what a lot of people, conservatives, Christians, even pro-lifers don't understand is that mentality of children being something that exists for my fulfillment and need who need to conform to my rights can also be very clearly seen in our conversations about reproductive technologies. Um, we draw a very strong contrast in chapter one between the abortion debate and you know what we call the baby taking industry and big fertility, what we call the baby making industry and how both of them determine children's rights based on whether or not they are wanted. So, and of course they are wanted based on what adults desire for their idea of family and self-fulfillment. But let me, let me drill down on that point for a moment because I think it's an important point is that it's we're being kinder to children in a sense than than our forefathers were because we're more we're more careful of their needs when they when they exist their material needs but only up until the moment it interferes with our sexual desires as adults so uh, is it fair to sort of draw a laser focus under the word sexual there Absolutely. Um, and you're exactly right materially everybody's better off um, than they were oh my gosh 50 70 years ago you know, 
what was it, only a couple hundred years ago, life expectancy was drastically shorter than it was today. So we have seen a lot of improvement, but not when it comes to children's fundamental rights to life and fundamental, their rights in their primary relationships. Mm. And interestingly, that when you cannot safeguard a child's right to life or right to their primary relationships, the impact is they are going to suffer in most areas of their life. So we spend a lot of time um, in chapter one and chapter two talking about the harms of being separated from one or both biological parents and the fact that it will drastically increase the child's likelihood of living in poverty, of being homeless um, as a teen, of, um, you know, youth suicide increases drastically, um, high school dropout rates, teen pregnancy, um, criminality for boys, um, that if you cannot safeguard these fundamental rights, it doesn't really matter how much material uh, comfort kids have. You are stacking the deck against them in all of these different areas of child thriving. Katie, you started by talking about divorce. And divorce is something that all of us have become very accustomed to. And one of the things we're accustomed to is the idea that, that mom and dad have to be happy in order for their children to be happy. And that if mom and dad's happiness, mom or dad's happiness depends on them pursuing some other romantic interest or they're simply unhappy in their marriage then the children will adjust Mm -hmm. and that the you know the fact that their parents have some new ease and peace in their lives because there's they're separated from the the, their children's father or mother that they that will make up for it first of all i i agree with you that's erroneous completely erroneous um, to have a child forcibly separated from their mother or father is a terrible injustice to that child that will reverberate all through their lives and even their children's lives. I mean, it's a transgenerational hurt, I think. Absolutely. Why have we become so accustomed to, to the idea and repeat it to each other? Well, the children will be okay. Why, why mm-hmm. are we okay with this thought? Right. And right, I, that was really employed first in the no-fault divorce debate, right? Uh, if I'm happy, the kids will be happy. It has carried over into every other manifestation of family structure that we have had, you know, repeated by the single mother by choice um, onto, you know, two moms or two dads onto, you know, use of sperm and egg donation, right? But if I'm happy, the kids will be happy, right? Really what kids want is happy parents. No, we actually have done the studies. We've been studying family structure for several decades. We know what makes children happy, you know? you know the whole mantra well the kids will be fine we actually know what how kids will be finest and the data shows and the stories of children confirm that they are finest and they are happy and they are the most likely to be protected and loved when they are raised in the home of their married mother and father you know we do spend quite a bit of time talking about divorce in the book chapter five is totally devoted to it where we will wreck your idea that if the adults are happy the kids will be happy with mountains of of studies on the impact of divorce on children Interestingly, the kids who tend to suffer the most are children who come from low-conflict marriages that ended in divorce. Um, The kids who leave a, whose parents leave a abusive or high conflict marriage, um, oftentimes they go, okay, well, it makes sense why they divorced. But the 70% of kids who experience parental divorce and whose parents marriage with low conflict, oftentimes they suffer the most psychologically. Why is that? 
Well, it's because all kids, when they when they have to experience parental loss or family breakdown, there's a wound and there's a pain. And when there's a low conflict marriage that ends in divorce, the child's looking for a reason. They need some kind of reason. Why did this happy home where both of my mother and father lived together, loved one another, loved me? Why did that end? And there's no reason for it that they can see dad wasn't abusing mom. You know, mom wasn't running around with somebody else. And so oftentimes the kid comes to the conclusion, either I must be the problem or perhaps love and commitment just can't exist in this world. Mm -hmm. And so both of those have incredibly detrimental outcomes for kids. So, um, yeah, the whole kids will be fine. Um, my kids are happy if I'm happy. Um, that's been disproven. By the data. That's been disproven. Yes. It's still very yeah. alive in people's heads, <laughs> unfortunately. I hear it all the time. Yeah. I have a friend. Well, in the way. Mm -hmm, I have a friend who recently decided to, who fell in love with someone else, recently decided to divorce her husband, 12 year old twins. And she, I, I gave her all the stats, but she said, nope, you know, my happiness is very important when just because I have children doesn't mean that my happiness ceases to matter. I tried to explain mm -hmm. to her that it did cease to matter, but I couldn't get through to her. If yeah. you just, well, I mean, and what we say about that kind of thing is, look, all marriages go through challenges. There's temptations that are, I mean, if you're, if you're serious about till death do us part, right, there's going to be temptations, challenges, very serious challenges that I will never discount. But if the adults fail to do the hard work, if they fail to redirect their focus towards their child's parent, if they fail to work through the problems, really what they're saying is, oh, this cross is too heavy for me. Here, kids, you take it instead. Oh. Really, that's what's going on, is the parent is just passing along the burden to their children. They're saying, I don't want to do the hard work. You do the hard work, kid. And, you know, you cannot avoid that reality, um, you know, when you read the 30 plus stories of children of divorce that we included in that chapter. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Katie Faust about her very important book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Hearing you talk about divorce, Katie, I was thinking about my, my own growing up. My parents had a high conflict marriage. <laughs> Not that my father was a wife beater or anything, but they had a very, a very, yes, high conflict marriage I would call it and now my father's my parents are very old still married my father is very sick with ALS and my mother's taking such good care of him and it's been it's such a tremendous blessing to our entire family to all their grandchildren that they have seen this you know rising up being able to to get past you know many years of of difficulty to find that safe harbor of, of mutual love and mutual assistance in their old age. It's a truly wonderful to see, even though I grew up in a difficult home, I can, I can, I thank God that they were, that they stayed together. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, in this book where we go through every manifestation of modern family and where we make it very clear that there's no adult group that is blameless and there's no adult group that um, deserves specific demonization like all adults need to conform to the rights of all children and single married gay and straight need to do hard things for kids right so we make it very very clear in every chapter of this book that you can overcome right it's hard for everybody whether you're single married gay or straight some at some point you're going to have to Take on some kind of burden and sacrifice to protect the rights of children in your world. But when you do, there is such a healing medicinal ripple effect through 
the lives of your children and your extended family and oftentimes the entire community. And so how incredible that you got to see that worked out before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really a wonderful blessing. And I see and I see the strength of it in my children and in my siblings children. Because they do have, um, they gain from that that the, the what you mentioned the of the the child whose parents split up and they don't even see any cause for it that they gain from it um, from seeing my parents and couples like that that they say well there is such a thing as love that endures there is such a thing as faithfulness yes. that climbs over obstacles and forgives and forgives again and that's such a beautiful yeah. lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when we aren't, you know, we talk in the book about kind of a repeat theme is that children, there's three staples of a child's social emotional diet, mother's love, father's love, and stability. And of course, kids need more things in their social emotional world. But if they don't have at least those three, they're going to be emotionally malnourished. Um, and so you can go through difficult marriages, right? But even those difficult marriages, when they stay together, offer the stability that is critical for child thriving. So um, we talk at the end of the divorce chapter about how often unhappy marriages become happy marriages through perseverance. Um, and the inevitable instability that is going to result after a parental breakup and a parental split. Um, So not only will the child miss out on 50% of mom's love and 50% of dad's love, but oftentimes stability is gone completely. So even when you are, because there's probably plenty of people listening to this right now who are in very difficult marriages, who are struggling and striving, um, you are still doing something valorous, right? Valiant. Um, because you are doing the hard thing so that your kid is still afforded the stability that they desperately need um, and access and love from both parents. Um, and I do hope that you are able to find the other side of that valley um, with one another. Well, and and if you do know that your children will thank you from on their knees, <laughs> even when yes. as as they see that that beauty reflected even in in the next generation. Now, Katie, mm-hmm. you you speak about about the rights of children. Now, we hear a lot about human rights, right? We hear that people have a right to the, actually the list of rights is getting longer and longer every day. Mm-hmm. But what what would you say? What do you de- what would you say are the rights of children specifically? Oh, I love it. I love it because I just uh, recorded a video with the Colson Center um, on their platform called What Would You Say? Um, no. <laughs> on the topic of children's rights. You know, so somebody, a lot of times, um, either people have never heard of the term children's rights, um, but you're exactly right. We know that people believe that they have a right to housing or they have a right to marry or they have a right to government funded birth control um you know or they have a right to bear arms or whatever so we we hear about all different kinds of rights it's very confusing what rights even are at some point um and so in the chapter first chapter of the book we lay out why children have a natural right to their own mother and father and honestly for people kind of in the christian world we are already familiar with children's rights. We just understand it in the context of children's right to life. Um, And so it's already familiar to us. But what many people are surprised to learn is that children also have a right on this side of the womb. And the first primary right recognized by the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, outlines children's right to be known and loved by both biological parents. Now, the other problem (laughs) that we have sometimes is Maybe you have heard the term children's rights, but you've heard it used 
wrongly in that, you know, a children have a right to sexual pleasure or a children have a right to transition even above and beyond, you know, the objections of their parents or, um, you know, children have a right to sexual education, you know, that is graphic and, you know, innocence violating. And so we make a distinction in the video that's coming out that um, those are not real child rights. <laughs> I mean, we have to be very careful because these days, whatever an adult really, really wants is conveniently mm -hmm. framed exactly. as a right. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be clear about what the natural rights are. We believe that as Martin Luther King did, that natural rights should be reflected in our legal system. Um, but then we also need to be careful to call things that are not some things that are that matter or maybe don't even matter not everything is a right just because you want something even if you need something it's not necessarily a right and so we do spend some time in chapter one and in this new video coming out um talking about what children's rights are and how it's been misused and how, in my opinion, we need to redeem the term children's rights, right? We, as at them before us, believe we need to start a global children's rights movement because especially when it comes to their right to life and the right to their own mother and father, this right specifically is being assaulted across the globe. Mm, that's interesting. The right to your own father and mother. Now, that goes against our idea, a very strong cultural modern idea that all children need is one adult that loves them, at least, <laughs> or any mm -hmm. or any combination of adults thereafter uh, of, of no relationship. Now, I'm an adoptive mom. I'm, I'm a mom by biology and adoption. And and my I have one daughter who's not being raised by the the mother and father who who are her proper biological mother and father, so this whole idea of biology mattering is a very it's a very interesting point to me. Why does biology matter? Why is the why are the biological parents so important? Yes, um, I'm also a mother by biology and adoption. Oh. Um, so, so I you think understand it's, why it's complicated uh, in our heads. Absolutely. And why we need to have a really good answer for it. Mm -hmm. Because once you start talking about biology matters, obviously, those of us who understand the redemptive aspects of adoption go, hey, wait a second, are you saying I'm not a mom? <laughs> right? And so we need to have a good answer for that. So first, let's talk about why biology matters. First of all, biology matters because it grants to children, statistically, the two people who are the most protective of, invested in, and connected to children, right? We have been able to observe that and measure that over the last several decades, that biological parents statistically are going to be the place, the married biological home is statistically the place where people are most likely to be safe and loved, right? So mm -hmm. you're what you brought up is, well, kids don't need biological parents or even moms or dads. They just need to be safe and loved. And then I tell them, I agree, kids need to be safe and loved. So congratulations, you're one of us. You believe that children should be raised by their married mother and father whenever possible because statistically, that is the place where they are the least likely to be abused, neglected, and abandoned. Now, what, another reason why biology matters, because if you honor the rights children have to their own biological parents, you automatically grant them the perfect gender balance. They will always get both halves of humanity, male and female, in their own home from birth until, you know, hopefully late into their adulthood. And that gender complementarity optimizes child development. But third, and this is really important, biology matters because it grants to children something that they crave, which is biological identity. And we know that because we have seen decades of adopted children and now waves and waves of children created through sperm and egg donation take to 23andMe or search the internet for 
hours, years, or even decades to try to find their missing biological parents because something about that biological identity matters to kids. So as an adoptive mom, I recognize that there are some things that my son has lost that I'll never be able to fully compensate for. He is my child. I love him. He's just as much of a Faust as my other three kids are. But he has lost something when his parents were unable to care for him that I cannot replace. And it doesn't make me less of a mother to him. It just means that I need to make room for him to recognize that he gets to mourn and he gets to grieve and he gets to ask questions about that missing piece of him. It's okay for him to say, why don't I look like anybody else in the family? Or I, I wish that I had the same kind of birth story that my siblings do. Um, but when we minimize the importance of biology, especially for adoptees or children created through sperm and egg donation, um, it makes them think that their natural longing and curiosity to know the two people responsible for their existence is somehow wrong. Um, and that can be really detrimental for kids. Wow, I, you actually brought tears to my eyes, Katie. <laughs> Because it's, uh, it's, it's such a fraught subject for adoptive parents, mm -hmm. how much we love these children and we see, we recognize mm -hmm. in them that wound, that terrible wound yes. of, of losing their biological parents, even though we're surrounding them with all the things that a child needs, you know, a mom and a dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and yes. yeah, but it's very, it's very, um, it's strong. It's a strong thing for us to, to consider. Well, It's so important. This topic is so important. We actually devoted chapter nine in our book to adoption. First of all, a proper understanding of what adoption is. There's um, a lot of misunderstandings about adoption. Um, the first one is that adoption is not for adults. Adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. You know, if you're suffering with infertility, it's wonderful if you're able to offer a home to a child, but those kids don't exist for you. You exist for them. And so we have to first understand that. And then we have to understand that for kids, adoption always begins with loss. Um, it's not a zero-sum game, you know, where a child needs parents. There's wonderful parents who can love the child. Ding! Problem solved. Um, and there's no wound created there. Oftentimes, these kids experience a primal wound um, because we're asking them to do something that no child should ever have to do, which is disconnect from their biological parents and reattach to biological strangers. Now, you can recognize all of that and still say, adoption is good and redemptive, and a just society will always find loving homes for children in need. And then we contrast adoption with reproductive technologies, um, which actually is the inverse of all of adoption best practices. And we contrast it. You know, we say adoption is an institution centered around the rights and needs of children. Reproductive technologies are a marketplace that is centered around the desires of adults. And so there are, you know, not all, not all family fragmentation is created equal. The households where adults are doing hard things for kids, and that includes adoptive homes, are the ones that need to be exalted. And the ones where adults are forcing kids to sacrifice for them, those need to be called out and confronted. If you can hold that thought, Katie, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Katie Faust on her new book, Then Before Us, taking a look at surrogacy and the harms that reproductive technologies have on children when it comes to their emotional well-being. We'll be right back here on EWTN Radio. This is Conversations with Consequences.
Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We've been chatting with Katie Faust. She's author and founder of Them Before Us. You know, assisted reproductive technologies has commodified children and, and turned them in our own heads. It's turned them into products that we that we produce, right, in, in a lab, mm-hmm. and then hand out to people who can pay for it. And and now it's mm-hmm. it's and then you say this in your book, they're becoming people have now a right to children because if right. if um, you know if everything if if I'm infertile and I'm in or I'm in I'm socially infertile because I'm not going to be sleeping with somebody of the opposite sex, so I will never mm-hmm. <laughs> I will never be able to get pregnant or make someone mm-hmm. else pregnant. I'm, I consider myself infertile, and then that's. It's a kind of disease, so then the government has to, you know, come in and fix my disease. And the only way to fix it is to create a child in a lab or a womb in, U- in the Ukraine. Right. And it's just horrifying because it all keeps going. It just keeps building that horrible pyramid of a child as something that, you know, adults create and pass around at will. Instead of a child, you know, a child is a means to an end instead of a, an end in itself. Right. Yep. And you, you've nailed it. You're exactly right. And I would encourage your listeners, um, you don't need to take Gracie's word for it or my word for it. Listen to the kids themselves. Mm. Listen to the kids themselves who are created through these technologies. Um, we devote chapter seven in our book to donor conception, children created through sperm and egg donation. Look at their lives. Like, was it enough that their parents paid lots of money for them and that they're so very loved and wanted? Because that's what they're told. Like, your donor is not your father, um, and you're so loved and wanted, you should be happy. And yet these children are psychologically burdened by the genealogical bewilderment that they experience, this idea that I I don't know who I am. Um, They are desperate to find their missing biological parent. They are curious about or incredibly disturbed by the fact that they have dozens to hundreds of half-siblings that they probably will never know. Um, you know they feel Katie, commodified. Does it, does, it's almost like we're creating orphans, right? And then, have, and then the way we're, we're like creating children. The way, the, the way adoption wounds are adopted children, that's, we're creating children like that on purpose. Like yeah. we're creating children who are not, who are purposely not um, being raised by their mom, their biological mother and father. What what a terrible exactly thing to right. do. What yeah. a terrible thing. That's right. We say that too um, in the end of our chapter on adoption where we're contrasting adoption and donor conception. We say, look, a just society cares for orphans. It doesn't manufacture orphans. Oh, but yes. that's exactly what sperm and egg donation and surrogacy brings about is you are you are creating motherless and fatherless children. And not only that, you're calling it progress. You know, I gave a talk recently. I do a lot of sex, sex education for young people. And I gave a talk recently to eighth graders on sex ed. And do you know what they wanted to talk about? They wanted to talk about surrogacy. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's so present in their minds. But one, yeah. one eighth grader asked me, what about, they asked me surrogacy wrong. And I, I, you know, I didn't explain it as well as you, but I tried to, to get at the nub of the problem. And then, they, and then he repeated, but what if it's a person who's doing it just out of love because they really, you know, they feel sorry for someone for being infertile. And mm-hmm. so children are really trying to work through these patterns in their head, the things that, that the culture is presenting to them, because I think that they feel 
that they can, you know, in their sim- in the simplicity of their young hearts, they can see that that we as adults are creating huge problems for children. And if I could answer that eighth grader, I would say, you know, if we had talked about some of the things you and I had talked about, I'd say, here's what you need to remember from this talk. No adult should ask children to sacrifice for them. Adults should be sacrificing for you, honey. Okay, you're the child. You're the one that needs protection. You're the vulnerable one. And so it's the adults who are have fully formed prefrontal cortex, who are have the decision-making power, who have volition, who should be sacrificing and accepting burden for children. You should always have a little anxious check in your heart if an adult is asking you to sacrifice for them so they can live as they please. Remember that in every conversation about marriage and family and really a lot of other things too, is it's not your job to sacrifice for adults. So now let's talk about surrogacy, okay? And what I hear you saying is you're talking about the best case scenario. Let's say that there's a dad and a mom who can't have their own baby or the mom can't carry the baby. So it's the dad's own sperm and the mom's own egg. And they make a baby in a laboratory because that's how that works. And then they take that lab created baby and they put it into the womb of another woman that's not being paid. And then the woman gestates that child for nine and a half months, the baby's born and they hand the baby over to their own genetic mother and father. So what's the problem with that? Mm -hmm. And the problem is... Because the baby is still sacrificing for the adults. What is the baby sacrificing? The baby has to lose a relationship with the only person they know on the day that they are born. So in that nine and a half months of development, there's one person the baby knows, and it's the birth mother. The baby doesn't know that that birth mother is not their genetic mother. The baby knows the mom's voice and heartbeat and smell. And the moment the baby's born, that's the person that the baby wants. So we don't lay babies on the chest of random strangers so they can form a bond. We put the baby right on the mom's chest because they have an existing bond, right? There's a lot of important development and attachment and bonding foundations that are laid in the first nine and a half months of life. And so if you cut the baby off from the birth mom and hand them over to somebody else, many adoptees who were adopted at birth call that a primal wound, a wound where they had to lose the only person that they knew. And they would report later, adoptees, that it interfered with their future ability to trust and bond and attach, and that it's often resulted in some psychological challenges like depression and anxiety. And those adoptees are not wrong. Right. We actually know that adoptees suffer from that kind of distress in ways that children raised by their own biological parents do not. And so even in the situation where the child is handed over to their two genetic parents, they are still being asked to lose something for the adult. And that is they're losing the relationship with the only person that they know on the day they're born. Hi, Katie. I wish you had been there with me that day because that's the perfect answer. (laughs) I wasn't able to explain it so well. So what we tried to do in this book is not just offer that kind of lens through which to view, not just offer the hard and fast statistics on every single topic that we cover from divorce to same-sex parenting to polygamy to cohabitation to sperm and egg donation to surrogacy to adoption. But we also have collated the stories of children who have had to live through these modern families so that you can look them in the face yourself and say, are the kids happy? Because the adults are happy. So why aren't these kids happy? And they're not. 
Well, you know, those are great words to end with, Katie. Your book is really wonderful, and it really shines a light on something that we've been thinking, we've been feeling, and but haven't grappled with. And I think we really need to grapple with it as, as a society. So maybe you can come back on again, and we can um, delve into some of the other chapters that we didn't get to. I've been talking to Katie Faust. She's the author of Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Right Movement. To learn more about this movement, and visit thembeforeus.com. Katie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for letting me talk to you and your listeners. Soon we will hear a very moving homily by our dear Father Roger Landry. But first, we have the president of the Catholic Vote with us, Brian Birch. We're going to discuss with him a very important poll that was released this week on the topic of perception when it comes to Catholic politicians presenting themselves for communion when policies that they openly support in public are against church teaching. Yes, you know who we're talking about. Welcome to the show, Brian. Great to be with you today. So you at the Catholic Vote just released a really interesting poll. Please tell us about the poll and what it means. Well, sure. As everyone knows, our bishops are currently actually just uh, this week uh, engaged in their biannual meeting, their spring plenary uh, meeting virtually. And one of the issues on their agenda, which has been uh, widely discussed in the news is the question of what they're calling Eucharistic coherence. Obviously, that's kind of a buzzword for a lot of different issues related to the Eucharist. But in general, we understand their agenda item is whether or not to initiate a document, uh, drafting a document that will address many of the challenges associated with the doctrine of the Eucharist, uh, appreciation for the teaching on the Eucharist, and most importantly, a recovery of the sense of the richness and mystery of the Eucharist. Of course, that gets quickly politicized, given the fact that we have a president of the United States who is a practicing Catholic, given his public policy uh, positions that are in direct contradiction in many ways to core teachings of the church, especially on the sanctity of life. And so we wanted to try to get a better understanding of Catholic opinion and Catholic sense of how our bishops ought to deal with this question. And we thought it was very important that a poll of this type poll mass attending Catholics. Unfortunately, sometimes you know, we're in secular media does Catholic polling, they interview generic Catholics or anyone that is self-identified Catholic. And of course, theologically, we know uh, if they're baptized, you're Catholic, you're Catholic for life. But when it comes to trying to understand a Catholic sentiment and Catholic attitudes on these sorts of difficult questions, it's important to understand what Catholics who are going to church regularly, uh, contributing to their church, participating in their ministries, obviously raising their children in the faith, what those Catholics really believe about these questions. And the results actually were, were shocking in a good way. Just to give you a couple things of the respondents, and there were 600 uh, participants in this poll, so it was quite sizable. Uh, 83% of the respondents agreed with the, this following statement, the Catholic public officials who disagree with their church on serious or grave matters create confusion and disunity. And I think that's very important because I think part of the pastoral challenge of prominent public officials like our president, uh, when they receive our Lord, given their position, there is a sense of scandal that is perpetrated against the, the ecclesial communion of our church, that if you can hold this position and still receive the Eucharist, and there can be no consequence of that, it does create a lot of confusion among faithful believers who have been taught, rightfully, that this is a grave matter, it's a serious matter, I mean, it's something that Catholics 
um, are bound by obedience uh, to obey. Another related question to that in the poll, uh, 74% of the respondents agreed uh, with this statement. Catholic public officials who disagree with church on serious or grave matters should avoid creating confusion and disunity by not presenting themselves for communion. And to us, that's very important because unfortunately, again, the media has kind of framed this whole discussion around a kind of finger-wagging bishops that are going to try to politicize or, as, as some people say, weaponize the Eucharist and to deny a public official communion. And really, in so many ways, uh, the responsibility is on the communicant themselves. Uh, we all know as, as practicing Catholics that it's our responsibility to form our conscience properly. And if we are conscious of, of grave sin, to not present ourselves uh, for communion. And really, the obligation is on our part not to create that that scandal or certainly uh, that confusion and disunity that I think people cited. Brian, it seems to me sometimes that people have forgotten very, very often and American Catholics have have not been taught recently and have forgotten that, that to present oneself for communion, one has to be in a state of grace. And that requires coherence of life and also recent confession and av- avoidance of grave moral sins, of course. Do you think that uh, that this poll reflects the fact that people still remember that, that at least 74% of regular mass scores understand that that kind of coherence applies to all of us as Catholics? That's a very good question, and you're absolutely right to point that out, is that we are obligated to receive the sacrament of confession and to be in a state of grace. I'm not sure if that necessarily fully informed people's reactions. Unfortunately, not everyone has been well catechized, and so they come to it in different ways. Mm -hmm. I suspect in in, in a lot of ways, and certainly this is part of the reason the church has these norms, is that there are kind of natural consequences of living in a human community and calling yourself a member of that of that community and a as as the president has said a devout member of that community and then to publicly flout those teachings and so i think just at a natural level you have a bit of of shock and kind of disgust at someone who would say one thing and hold themselves out in a particular way and then do exactly the opposite. And so I think just at a, at a base level there, kind of a human emotion perspective, you, you react that way. Now, we've always had politicians that behave this way. We've always, sadly at least as long as I've been paying attention, and that's been for a while, have had, right. have had Catholic politicians that uh, support policies and laws and promote laws and pass laws that fly in the face of the things that are most foundational to our faith. Abortion is the one that always comes up because it's the one that happens the most, the one that we're most concerned about because of the vulnerable, the vulnerability of the unborn child. What has changed? Is it simply that, you know, the number one politician right now in the United States, the, ex- the, the executive, is a Catholic and calling him self-devout? Well, two things. One is, you're right, we've always had these politicians that flout this, many of our teachings. Um, but one thing's important to note is that the teaching has never changed. This conversation that the bishops are planning to have is not anything new. In fact, what they really will be doing is reaffirming something that has long been true in the church and has long been established. Even uh, the last time there was the possibility of a Catholic president and John Kerry, and there was a discussion the bishops had and there's some shenanigans that occurred, if you recall, where not all the information was shared with the bishops uh, from the Holy Father at that time. I think this has really come to a peak here, and for uh, several reasons. One is, yes, 
there is something significant about a person holding the highest office in the land who is Catholic, who is aggressively advocating in a way that we've never seen before by a person of that stature or position. We certainly have pro-abortion politicians, but you know, there's a difference between being in Congress, for example, than there is uh, being the president of the United States, where you actually sign and officiate the law. I think the second piece is, I think the problem has become more and more widespread, and it's not simply a question of Catholic public officials. It's all Catholics. Mm -hmm. I think we would all agree the sense of reverence and the uh, sense of understanding of, of, again, the richness and beauty of the sacrament itself has been denigrated and lost. And so I'm hopeful, and I think this is really the bishop's aim. This is not really a political exercise as much as it is a pastoral effort to intervene here and do a number of things. This teaching document likely will just be one piece of a larger effort over several years to try to recover a lot of this the, the proper understanding of the Eucharist that all Catholics are bound to. And you know, as and as you say in your poll, 83% of Catholics understand this, mass-going Catholics, that when politicians, when their actions are contrary to church teaching, it creates confusion and disunity. And that's really, it's been really sad to watch that. And you know, it's caused a lot of sadness in people's hearts who, who support the church, who love the church, and then find themselves having to turn around and explain to other people who may not be feel so warmly about the church that, that no, it is impossible to be a good... Catholic and also go support abortion. That's right. I mean, I think we all kind of sense this. If you, even if you you attend mass regularly, that, that we, we've really lost a sense of the sacred and, and what the church calls the source. I think Vatican II, thankfully, called it. It's the source and summit mm-hmm. of our entire Christian life. If we indeed believe that is true, that is the ultimate significant thing that binds us together and is the action of the divine in our life through the sacrament given to us. Gosh, how could we not do everything possible to try to protect the integrity and meaning of that very thing that, that is defines what we are as Catholics. So true, Brian. And thank you so much for being with us today. We're all out of time, but if our uh, listeners want to learn more about the poll, where should they go? Sure, they can go to catholicvote.org. Uh, the poll is posted there, and there's many questions, including more data on the characteristics of the respondents I think people will find helpful. Thank you. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Last week we recall Jesus gave us two parables about the growth of faith. This Sunday he puts his disciples in a boot camp experience on the Sea of Galilee to test their faith and help it grow. The gospel of Jesus' calming of the winds and the seas is much more than a demonstration of the Lord's power over the forces of nature. He, with a word, created the heavens and the earth, the seas and all they contain. With a word, could calm them. As we see in the gospel, he did. Neither is Sunday's gospel a manifestation of the failure of the apostles to believe in this power of Jesus. They knew that he had that power, which is why they woke him in the first place. In the days immediately preceding this miracle, they had already seen him cast out demons, cure Simon Peter's mother-in-law and others who were ill, heal lepers, forgive the sins and paralysis of a crippled man, and straighten a withered man's hand. There were no doubts about Jesus' omnipotence. The point of Sunday's Gospel is that even though they knew Jesus had the power to calm the seas and the wind, they began to doubt whether he would do so. It's a display of their failure to believe in Jesus' love for them. We see this in the question they ask as soon as they startle Jesus from what must have been a deep and long overdue sleep on an uncomfortable and rocky boat. Master, do you not care that we are perishing? 
They had begun to doubt whether Jesus gave a hoot whether they drowned in the lake. They had begun to question whether he was indifferent to their plight. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus' whole life, of course, is an answer to that question. He did care that we were about to die. And that was the reason why the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, took our nature and was born of the Virgin. He cared enough that he spent himself to the point of exhaustion, teaching, healing the sick, and comforting the afflicted. He cared enough ultimately to take our place on death row, giving his life so that we might survive. Yes, he did care. Like Jonah, who, who was tossed into the sea in order to calm the ferocious storm, so Jesus tossed himself overboard to quell the tempests that were causing us to die. As he hurled himself into the abyss from the cross, he calmed the storm of sin so that we might reach the eternal shore. He did care. The problem was that the apostles doubted his loving concern. In this, the twelve were like the twelve tribes of Israel 1,300 years before. After they had witnessed God's hand in the ten plagues of Egypt, after they had seen him part the Red Sea, after they had seen Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots perish in the sea, after they had witnessed Moses strike the rock to provide them with water, after they had been fed miraculously with manna and quails from heaven, after they had seen the thunder and lightning of Moses' conversations with God at the top of Mount Sinai, the Jews continued to doubt in God's love for them. They obviously knew that God had the power. He had already shown them this power on all these occasions. But they doubted whether he would exercise that power to help them. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt, they complained to Moses, that you have taken us away to die in the desert? Whenever anything got difficult, they grumbled. They doubted. They began to question whether God's solicitude had an expiration date. His past actions didn't factor into their equation. The same thing was happening with their descendants in the boat. They had witnessed Jesus' power and his goodness on so many occasions, but they began to wonder whether his love, not his power, had a limit. They began to question whether he was indifferent to their plight. It was, simply put, a lack of faith in who he was, based on a failure to grasp the meaning of all he had done up until then. That's why Jesus, as soon as he had awakened and calmed the seas and the wind, turned to his followers and said, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Same lack of faith that happened to the Jews in the desert and to the apostles on the Sea of Galilee can happen to all of us. Generally, few of us question whether God has the power to work a miracle, but very often we begin to wonder whether he has the will. We too can begin to think that he's indifferent. When we're assailed by the storms of sorrow, the downpours of doubt, the twisters of uncertainty, the hail of anxiety, and the blizzards of loneliness, we can start to imagine that he's having sweet dreams while we're experiencing nightmares. We can start to reckon that he's snoring while we're screaming. This happens when we, like the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, begin to forget all that the Lord has done for us up until now, and what that shows about who he is and how loved we are by him. This is what Pope Francis reminded all of us of March 27th, when at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic from an empty St. Peter's Square, he preached on this gospel and said, like the disciples... We were caught off guard by an unexpected turbulent storm. We have realized that we're all in the same boat, all of us fragile and disoriented. And he said that we needed to learn from the disciples' lack of faith and grasp that more than anyone, Jesus cares about us and that with him on board, there will be no shipwreck. The apostles were anxious because they were paying more attention to the waves and the winds around them than to the presence of Jesus with them. We, like them, need to focus more on Christ than our problems. To believe in Jesus means not just to trust that he has power, but to have faith in his ever-present goodness and love. 
There are many applications of the lessons we learn from this Sunday's Gospel, but as we prepare this weekend to celebrate the gift of fatherhood and to pray for and thank for all our dads living and deceased, it's fitting for us to celebrate the love of God the Father and thank Him for the fatherly love He never ceases to show us. Jesus came into the world to reveal the love of the Father for us and to show us how to love Him back by receiving that love, by speaking to Him with filial confidence, by seeking to become more and more like Him in the way we love others. Earthly fathers, like the dads listening now, and spiritual fathers, have so much to learn about being good dads by learning what Jesus, who is the image of the Father, has revealed about the fatherhood of God the Father. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus spoke to us about the confidence we should have in the love of God the Father with the images of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field that the Father cares for. Jesus said, Do not worry and say, What are we to eat, or what are we to drink, or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you besides. If Jesus is saying that we shouldn't fear receiving our most fundamental human needs, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be eaten alive by all of the other fears that can sometimes torture us. God the Father knows what we need. He loves us far more than he cares for the sparrows and the lilies. And Jesus wants us to have that confidence. God the Father is not asleep, although sometimes we're asleep to the real power of his love. Many fathers at times do worry about how to provide for the families they love. They're terrified over the consequence of losing their jobs and not being able to find good ones. Same thing can happen to spiritual fathers like priests who worry about how they're going to pay the bills or keep a parish school afloat or to help the many poor families who are struggling within their boundaries. How important it is for dads of all stripes to recognize that they're not fathering alone. God the Father wants to father through us. Jesus promises that God the Father will always be there providing for what we really need. And on this Father's Day, we thank him for loving us that much. Jesus' abiding presence is for us a reminder of just how much God the Father loves and cares. The early Christians, as soon as they started to build churches, used to call the body of the church the nave, from the Latin word navis, for ship. In the church, just like 2,000 years ago, Jesus remains in the boat, even if at times... He's quiet and seemingly asleep. But this Sunday, he wishes to do more for us than he did even for the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He will awaken, not only to speak a word to calm the seas around us, but rather will say, This is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, take and eat, take and drink, so that from the inside, he can feed us to calm the storms within and without. As we prepare to receive him the fullest response to our prayer to the Father to give us what we really need, we ask him to take away our fears and to increase our faith so that we may rejoice in the gift of his presence in the nave of the church, believe in his power, trust in his love, and with the other members of the church, carry out the rescue mission as his spiritual coast guard all the way until we land at the eternal dock and come triumphantly to the Father's house to celebrate Father's Day forever. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. Well, our time has come to an end, friends. We hope you'll join us next week on Conversations with Consequences as we talk with Abigail Tucker about her new book, Mom Jeans. We'll also have Father Jeffrey Kirby with us. We wish all the dads listening today a very happy Father's Day this weekend. We hope that your wife and your kids spoil you very much. We also wish a happy Father's Day to our spiritual fathers, our priests. Until next time, friends. Friends.